Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I am Steve Schutz, and I'm very excited to be here today. This is, again, I guess, second episode, Stefan, of year two of Cars on Call. That's uh, pretty amazing. Two years ago, I w- never thought I'd be here for a second year, but here we are. Adams, are you psyched about uh, year two? I, I know you are. And uh, by the way, I think, Adams, you and I are both very excited that uh, Stefan is out of the closet where he didn't have good. <laughs> like, Stefan, you, you, your thing sounded terrible when you were in that closet in British Columbia. Adams, don't you agree? Well, I I was not sure that he was going to come out of the closet on these calls, but you know, if that's the way he chooses it, I mean, Stefan, we're not criticizing at all. If you're coming out, buddy, we're behind you. That's good. Hey, man, uh, we're, wait, we're not behind you. It was but a laundry it room. I should say it was a laundry room. <laughs> we're in front of you, but I'm, it is I'm a don't ask, don't you. tell environment. You know, <laughs> it was a it was a laundry room, and and uh, yeah, it was just terrible. You know, you cut out a couple times and. This is much better. I feel better with a stable internet Zoom Stefan. So this is great. Well, I'm back in the neighbor's house and then we saw the guys hanging off the poles and they told us that not 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 dancer poles, but um they told us in two to three months we should have the final hookup from the pole to the street to the house. So I I cannot tell you how my life is gonna change when that happens. It's just gonna be I can't wait. You know what's amazing is that we're one minute in. We've already talked about you coming out of the closet and something about pole dancing. <laughs> one minute. We're gonna we're gonna embarrass our guest. It's really funny, but um, yeah, I I'm really psyched to be in year two. I'm really psyched that all the internet stuff is working and Zoom is working, and uh, this is great. And as any listener who has been listening to the show with any frequency knows, we have had uh, a lot of conversation about the Ford Bronco. We all like it. We think it's a great truck, but we have we have noted with alarm that Ford seems to not be able to get it delivered, get it manufactured, get their supply supply chain shit together. And I have talked about my neighbor and friend without naming him. Well, he finally, after a long period of time, and I'll let him describe that, he finally got his Bronco. Uh, I'm not going to take full credit for this, James, but uh, you did get it on my birthday. And uh, oh, nice. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. So James Steele is a financial expert, financial guy, and uh, I don't know how to describe your job, except you're a neighbor and friend, and you have your Bronco. So James Steele, welcome. Thank you very much, Steve. It's great to be here. Great to see you guys in person, uh, virtually anyway, having listened to you over the last year. And I, I wanted to start by saying congratulations on your first year. Well, thank you. Enjoyed the show a lot. Yeah, we're all back once again in the top 10% having made it a year. 90% of podcasts fail. So I always like being at the top. Yeah. So James, walk us through this process. Here's what I will just say this, and I've said this before. There have been supply chains since the Model T in automotive. And it seems like I can think of a few cars offhand uh, in my lifetime 
that were unexpected successes and they were able to fill the pipeline and sell cars without huge delays. The Ford Mustang and then the uh, Datsun 240Z, the first generation Mazda RX-7, the Lexus LS400, those were all much more successful than they were predicted to be. And yet, if a customer wanted one, he would get one either off the showroom, or off the showroom floor or in a couple months. With the Bronco, we're looking at years. So James, tell us what it was like from your experience. I'll just express frustration. I don't understand how this happened. I know you don't either, but just walk us through what happened when you when you took or when you ordered it and what happened. Sure. So I guess it goes back a couple of years, amazingly. My son first got interested in the Bronco, ordered one, put his original deposit down in September. I followed him uh, in December two years ago now, so December of 2020, and had to reorder a couple times through the process. Part of it was just verification after you paid your initial deposit, getting all the order specs done and submitted. So that was done in early 2021. And then uh, we waited uh, for quite a while to get that wheel moving. Uh, took a long time, but through the process, we went through another model year. So I got to reorder again in September of 2022 for the 2023 model year because they had stopped the production of the 2022s at that point. So reordered uh, once again, and Bronco finally shows up in Salt Lake uh, in late December, and then took another six weeks almost to get to me. So I got it in in January of 2023. Amazingly, goodness gracious! I mean, I'm I'm sitting here listening to the story, and James, thank you for even being like you. You were like a subtext story a few times. You got referenced as far as like the delays and you know another setback and another setback. And 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 I'm 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 curious on on the very top top side of that. What was your initial attraction to the Bronco? Were you like a, a vintage Bronco fan or you just decided, no, that's a neat looking new truck? Like, like what was the first thing? And a, a follow up to that, did your enthusiasm wane during this process? So go for that. Mm. Good question. So I've always been a Ford guy, much like you. <laughs> I, uh, I started out with a wood paneled country squire station wagon with a V8. Wow, that's the emotion <laughs> right there, baby. <laughs> that thing was a lot of fun. So I've been a Ford guy for a long time. I've owned a lot of Fords, had a, a couple of Mustangs. I currently drive a, a Mustang GT500 uh, SVT, which is a lot of fun. Oh, Steve, hey Steve's had a chance to drive yeah. that one. Uh, I've had probes. I've had derailed the conversation right there. <laughs> so I've had probes. I've had uh, Explorers. I've had a Ranger pickup. I've had all kinds of Fords. Um, so uh, a lot of, lot of experience there. The Bronco just kind of stood out to me. Uh, I needed a four-wheel drive for the mountains in Idaho. It's nice to have something that can travel in the snow, get in the dirt, get a little dirty and not worry about it. The Mustang obviously doesn't fill that bill very well. So it was time for me to get a, a get a Ford Bronco. Uh, just great styling. Loved the, loved the whole idea, the concept of bringing back really an icon uh, of the Ford franchise and, and just jumped on board. Honestly, you know, when my son showed interest in it. I let it percolate for a little while for me personally. And then it was like, well, if he's going to get one, I really need to get one too. I was a little jealous. So after all these years of anticipation and waiting and, you know, she finally comes out of the birthday cake. 
were you equally as enamored with it when it arrived? I've got a Ford Cobra replica in gestation, and it's like the anticipation is killing me. When it finally gets here, was it everything that you wanted it to be? And were you equally as excited having all the disappointments? And Absolutely. It wasn't the first time I was in one. I kind of glossed over the fact that I did do the off-rodeo experience in Austin, Texas. So I got to drive some factory cars uh, off-road with pro drivers, you know, sighting me through obstacles. So that really stoked the fire for my enthusiasm for that Ford. My wife and I had an absolutely fantastic experience at that off-rodeo. And it, it kept me going, you know, when I kind of felt like I wanted to throw in the towel, given the duration of how long we had to wait, you know, that off-rodeo experience definitely kept me interested uh, and wanting to stick it out to the very end. And I'm absolutely thrilled with the vehicle I got. It's better than what I expected. I love the finishes inside uh, the big screen that I have. I ordered the Lux package on an Outer Banks uh, version mm -hmm. uh, with the Sasquatch package and the the hard top roof uh, for Idaho. That makes a little more sense. Uh, some of those decisions, by the way, probably added to the time that I had to wait. Um, they would have loved to have shipped me a soft top a long time ago, but I, I just didn't want to do that. That's a mouthful. The Ford Bronco Sasquatch Outer Banks edition with the hard top, man. <laughs> and the Lux and the Lux interior. Love it though, man. Yeah. I think I've been listening to you guys a lot with your car descriptions. <laughs> so what color did you get? It's a uh, silver, silver and black. Okay. Yeah, I like and that. I, blue I heard your show about silver, but I love silver for that uh, that particular vehicle. Yeah. Well, that's that, that's just a good-looking package. It, it wasn't lime green. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I don't think we call it lime here. I I I, I think it, I think it's been returned as bile green. But it, um, <laughs> you know, I, I hope the marketing department for the off-rodeo experience are listening to this because it sounds like that salvaged or at least like like caught you before you hit the bottom of like, hey, is this even worth? waiting on this package and when you said hard top i think it has come out that the hard top was a big delay because they had some quality control problems and or the insignias that went on the car there were like some minuscule things that held up the production of an entire vehicle so they could have delivered 99.5 percent of it but not the 100 percent. so i'm glad you did the off rodeo experience and that was good enough for you to say yeah it's rekindle my enthusiasm i'll wait yeah 100 percent. just you know, going back to that experience in my mind, it was my first true off-roading experience. And what that vehicle is able to do right out of the factory just blew my mind. Hey, James. Um, one thing that I think uh, we're all curious about is, that, you know, you're talking about two and a half, roughly, year uh, wait. And during that time, Ford, of course, would have known that you would be frustrated. How much communication did they have with you? What, how often did they talk to you and what did they say? There were a couple facets to that. They do have a portal. Uh, once it was assigned a VIN number, that happened quite a bit into the process where you, once you had a VIN number assigned, could check on the progress through sort of a, an owner's portal, which was helpful, uh, although they missed several of the target deadlines that they had for completion steps, which was kind of added to the frustration just a little bit. Early on, Ford did hire a, a marketing firm, apparently, because they sent me a few knickknacks along the way, including 
a little calendar, which I noticed uh, I went all the way through a 12 month calendar before I ever got my Bronco. I don't think oh. they planned it that way. Oh, <laughs> I bet they didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> no, they sent me a nice little uh, Ford flag, a Bronco flag. They sent me a hammock that said, thanks for hanging in there. Did they send you a surrender flag as well? <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, they did not. <laughs> so there were a few little tidbits that came from the marketing side of Ford to kind of say, hey, we realize this is frustrating. We're with you. Uh, hang in there. Well, that's very cool. You know, James, when you're talking about your Ford history, I just couldn't help. But, uh, we beat on and laughed about the Mustang too. And, and you said you owned a probe, which was going to be the Mustang to be. And uh, did I hear that correctly? <laughs> You're a former probe owner. <laughs> I heard that too. And I, I want clarification. And Stefan, you yeah, because I, I didn't want to interrupt say, you when you said it, but I, I got to hear more about the Ford probe. I think he said a couple probes. <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting car. Uh, not my favorite vehicle I've ever owned. I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, but it was fun. It was a little sporty car. It was right after I got out of college. You know, those first few years uh, of a young professional life. And, and I, yeah, I had a probe for a little bit. Was it Gen 1 or Gen 2? Because they, they wouldn't improved have it. done that improved later it in, in life. But they it was improved it in Gen 2. Was it, moment. was it Gen 1 or Gen 2? They improved it. It was Gen 1, I believe. That was another selling point. I, I enjoyed the manual transmission, similar to my current Mustang. I I do like the manual. You know, you know, when I heard you describing your 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 Ford devotion and your lineup, inclusive of the probe, and I also couldn't help but notice that Stefan used the phrase "we beat on," and then he talked about the probe. So we're, we're really not going to go that next. But you, well, know, you, know, I, you know, James, man, you are absolutely Ford's dream customer, honestly. So, like, I, I'm going to halfway echo what Steve was asking, like, their communication. Was it at all personal? Like, oh, you've been a long-term Ford customer. You've been a devoted fan. You know, you sort of bleed Ford blue and we want to help you. Or was it just basically generically everybody in America's waiting? Not personal. No, okay, it's pretty gotcha. pretty generic. Yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. I forgot yeah. one Mustang that I have to mention. Uh, I, I think this goes back even to my childhood. Dad had a 68 Mustang, the old style with a cream color with a black interior. My sister was in a terrible accident uh, and was hit by a drunk driver in that car. And that car literally saved her life. It was built wow. like a tank. Wow. So wow. That, that, that reinforced among loyalty. other stories, cemented my my ford passion yeah mm -hmm. understandable absolutely okay we we uh, are going to move on but uh james i really appreciate first of all i'll say i'm so happy that you got the damn uh, bronco and it's a frustrating <laughs> wait but i you know i do see the bronco in the garage and every time i look at it, it's a very good looking truck so i'm glad you got it thank you steve yeah it's a pleasure to have it it's a pleasure to be here today thank you for inviting me man hey, congratulations hey, thanks, james. james yeah yeah Thank you. All right. So thanks again, James. And we're going to move on. And guys, there's some news. Uh, I think this is going to be something that, Adams, you're going to be very excited about. And Morgan, the manufacturer, is coming back to the United States. And uh, they have not really ever been here. I mean, I guess a few have been sold here and there, but they've never had a presence. And apparently they're going to be, have a real presence. According to Car and Driver, they're going to have a, a $70,000 
convertible sports car. It's going to look like the old Morgans of past. The difference is it's going to have a BMW turbo four engine. They've had BMW engines for a while, so that's not a surprise. It's going to be a automatic transmission and uh, it's pretty cool. 255 horsepower BMW engine, good looking vehicle, old school. Adams, what do you think about Morgans in general and them actually coming here officially specifically? Well, it's interesting. You know, you look at a, a niche manufacturer like Morgan and, you know, the, the word on the street, you know, I've, I've never looked at their order logs, but they have continuously sort of managed a decent little waiting list. Now, it's a smallest factory, of course, as one would imagine. But, you know, you think about it in this day and age where almost a hobbyist builder, and I'm not trying to, I'm not saying that to denigrate Morgan's manufacturing capability, but they themselves admit that a lot of their allure is because they are hand making cars. I mean, they are panel beating stuff. Now, a lot of the bodies of the new cars are going to be uh, manufactured off site uh, at a more, um, more of a plant, you know, a place that can actually stamp out aluminum. The crazy thing about Morgan to me that is just unbelievable because as a business exercise, this is like the, the biggest anomaly in the world. They are their own retro. They never deviated. They never tried to look modern. They never thought that, hey, this is the, the, the new age and we're going to look different. They acted differently under the skin a little bit. But Lord help us all, they still use a wooden frame. It's phenomenally antiquated underpinnings and very uh, antiquated silhouette. Probably they are the original look of a 1930s sort of retro car, but they've never changed. What's amazing to me is how they can get them in the country as a new automotive manufacturer. And the only thing I can, I couldn't find much, but the only thing I can think about the way they're getting around it is that they're coming under the NHTSA Replica Motor Vehicle Act, basically, where because they are replicating an older vehicle, which essentially they are because today's Morgan is no different than a Morgan from you know, 30 years ago. And they're only going to be limited 325 vehicles a year to be manufactured to fall under this guideline. So I think more to come on that. But I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm glad they're coming to America. They're not going to sell a lot, but maybe under this law, they'll be only selling 325. So I, I don't know how they're going to do it. Or maybe this thing does pass. I'd have a hard time believing this car could pass the standards, though. I think they're uh, exempt. Uh, I'm almost positive they're exempt. And it's because yeah, of the numbers. And I, I think the 375 is a specific number that gets them under the uh, threshold or under the ceiling. If they go over that, they have to obey more of the rules, specifically safety rules. And because, you know, they're they're going to conform with emission standards because they have a, a modern BMW engine. But uh, the safety, obviously, they're not going to. So I think it's that small number that makes them exempt. I think maybe Morgan is having a little bit of a moment uh, number one, they're coming to the United States. Number two, very famously, at least for us, Jerry Seinfeld just brought his very first Morgan in his life, and he loves it. So that's kind of cool. I think they're having a, a Morgan moment. Well, I mean, I'm hearing Jerry Seinfeld talk about getting a Morgan. He's been eyeing that one in California, and it seems to fit. Per, it, it seems to fit, fit his character perfectly. I mean, he loves the 356, the Spiders. He loves the old Beatles, and. I can just see Seinfeld tooling around in a comedians in cars and a Morgan. I think um, I think there's a lot to be said for that nostalgic feel that you get from a car like that. And I can see why people love him. Yeah, I think it's cool. And and uh, I love that he has one in, in 
and loves it. I, I've always liked it. The styling for me works. Uh, I think it's funny that they have this wood frame. I mean, imagine passing a, a an impact test. You know, IIHS would crash it into a wall, and the the occupant would die from splinters. So it's from toothpick impalation. Yeah, and been exactly. failed by toothpicks. What do you with the Morgan? Do you, you you get a factory warranty, and then you have to get like a termite bond from Terminex? <laughs> yeah. Especially if you live in Alabama or Florida, that's, that's right. Part of the deal. Yeah, oh you know you got to respect them though. I, I'm, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give them street props. You got to respect them for sticking to their gun, so to speak, on a very antiquated design that they've continued to update. And they've just sort of said, look, this is who we are. This is our brand. This is what we look like. This is what we act like. This is how we build vehicles. And, you know, they're selling them. I don't know how many attempts they've made in the U.S. I know the last thing that they tried was that Aero 8, which was the cross-eyed looking vehicle. Yeah. On there. But And that used to BMW motor as well. I think the 4.4 liter V8, somewhere in the 280 horse range. That was a crazy looking craft, but they sold a few of them. And, you know... I'm for them. You know, I, I think we all as car guys have to say, go Morgan. Just I hope well, you I think it, you know, we talk about it here that it provides an analog experience. And, you know, when you're out in the car, More there's log some, than Anna. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like prehistoric. <laughs> like, this is like um, the Flintstone analog version <laughs> of today's automotive <laughs> experience. But hey. Yeah. I think uh, actually that's exactly a perfect segue because uh, while uh, Morgan is the quintessential analog automotive experience, uh, Adams, you saw something that is the quintessential digital automotive experience. So talk about your car spotting. I think it's hilarious that we're doing this right after Morgan. Uh, it, it is. And that is, that's the perfect thing to notice here, Steve. I didn't even pick up on it but when I was at exotics racing. You know, I think I mentioned last week we're, you know, I'm looking across the field, these incredibly sexy silhouettes of low Italian makes and the hottest things from Germany. And then the, you know, the, the Aston Martin DB11 sitting over there. And I spotted a Nissan GTR and I thought for all the Nissan or the, the, uh, the Japanese tuner fans out there, please forgive me in advance for this. But I looked at it and it looked incredibly out of place. It was the only Japanese car there. And I, I'm going to just go ahead and say it. It's a little bit of an ungainly sort of profile. It does not look like the sports car that it is. I mean, its performance is undeniably fantastic. And, and you know, the, the GTR, like when, when have you guys last seen one on the street? Well, considering they only sold 57 in 2022. Yes, 228 sir. in 2021 and at their peak they sold the first year 1700 i can't even i think i've maybe seen three gtrs ever they're just and so I, yeah so i saw one last week uh for whatever well, reason well you go to sun valley okay i mean you know you see all kind of cool shit out there so oh yeah. was it in sun valley actually i don't think i've ever seen one in sun valley i've seen uh numerous in boise idaho so yeah I, I saw one recently. You know, it's an interesting piece of equipment. I mean, that, that particular car, the GTR, came out in like 2008. And Stefan's right. I was, I was looking at the production and sales numbers, too. And yeah, 1,708. And they, they went down progressively from that point. And you kind of wonder now, I mean, of course, Carlos going, I guess he could tell us from prison what, what is sort of like his... <laughs> 
And his, just to be fair, he's 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 free now, you know, but he, he's oh, no longer oh, prison. Free enterprise. <laughs> but you but you know, the, the the whole fact that they had that car, and that this is not really the point of car spotting, but why in the world would Nissan look at their Z, which is a vaulted name that has lived in in its wonderful race history, its wonderful ideology when it was launched in 1970 in the U.S. and it just outsold every car that it was attempting to um, compete against combined. And the Z comes out and then the GTR is sort of like its own home story advantage. And it was a wonderful car over there as the, originally as the Skyline. Why did they not put the technology that became the GTR into the Z? Now, that's like a product question. I don't mean for us to answer it here. But when I looked at that profile of that car and all it can do mechanically and performance wise, one wonders, why did that not make a better case to plug that into the Z car? Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a technological project. You know, they're going after the Nurburgring times with this thing. Initially had four wheel steering, they got rid of that. The motor's incredible. All these different dynamics you can change in the vehicle early on, electronic stability platforms and things. And but it went nowhere. And I think you're right, Adam. It just there was a lot of bang for the buck, but it not enough flash in the pan. It just um it just is not that cool a car looking. Yeah, technically driving, I'm sure it's gotta be a beast and amazing to drive, point and shoot, but that kind of money, that kind of technology, the the dress doesn't fit the lady, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I will. Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there you go. We could have shortened this segment for about four seconds with just that comment. Uh, I, let me just say, um, yeah, I have driven one, and the only car I've ever driven that it reminds me of is the uh, Porsche 911 Turbo S. They're both very powerful. They're both all-wheel drive. They're both automatic only. They're both very digital. They're both very, very, very fast and very capable. In both cars, I felt like the capability of the car was far beyond anything I could ever bring to driving. So those are two that are actually similar. But, you know, just Stefan, to your point, the 911 Turbo S looks like a really fast sports car. Yes, exactly. So I, I agree with you completely about we drove the Turbo S at the Porsche Experience in Barber. And going from a G, 911 GTS to the Turbo S was like a logarithmic change. It's like going from a F-16 to probably an F-35 or greater. I mean, it was, I could not believe the difference between the two cars. And once again, like you said, Steve, I, I never even felt like I could, I could ever even approach with the Turbo S. And as a result, it was so damn good that I lost that analog tail feeling in my butt on the seat where the car, the GTS would get loose a little bit squirrely at the limit of my ability because I wasn't perfect going in the corner. Whereas a 911 Turbo S, man, it, it will just take whatever you give it. But there's something about that experience that you need that just scares you a little bit, makes you think twice about it, you know, a little bit raunchy. That's what the, the Turbo S to me does not provide that. And I think the GTR falls in that same category. Incredibly capable, but doesn't have the dress and is not quite raunchy and ain't no tramp stamp on the back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it, is, Lord, 
it is, yeah, it is. It's a very digital experience. Uh, people describe it as a video game, and uh, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that. So fine, it's a video game without a tramp stamp. But anyway, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, well, we fit that on a t-shirt because I oh think my gosh, some call merch there. But it you was know, it was a very it was a very fun driving experience. So it was very different from uh, the Z car, you know, the three the three seventy Z. Uh, it's a very different experience and it's very digital and it's very fast. And I agree with Stefana. It would make sense to put a sportier body on it, something like the Z and maybe Adams, as you alluded to, maybe just the Z I'll make another point. A guy named Johan Denishin, who uh, used to run Audi North America, and he was put in charge by Carlos Ghosn of infinity. He very quickly took the GTR powertrain and stuck it into an Infinity sedan and called it the Eau Rouge, and he wanted to sell it, and then he was lured away by Cadillac, and whoever took over decided not to do that. I think it would have been very smart to make basically a, an Infinity M5 using the GTR powertrain, and I think Infinity would be in better shape today if they had done something like that. Oh, that or even a great point, Steve-O, a four-door yeah. A four-door, you know, M5 version, or even a shooting brake. I mean, Europe loves fast, fast. For listeners, shooting brake is what the English call a what we call a station wagon. Mercedes makes a hot hatch station wagon. Audi does, and they sell yeah, in does. Europe. And I guarantee you, they way outsell the international combined sales of the GTR. And you're right. What a what a great idea! They should have thrown that into a four-door sedan little bit blown out fenders and into shooting brake and they could at least save that powertrain and technology into somewhere with the sales to keep it going on or a midsize infinity suv and that would sell a lot more than 56 units <laughs> yeah and it doesn't even have the cachet like, like when something sells 56 units i mean you're thinking in terms of bugatti mclaren and porsche anything in 56 units like that is a coveted number and those 56 lucky people you know are the 56 people even feeling lucky about it? And, you know, we mentioned earlier, and again, I don't mean this as a denigration of the Japanese car market, but their their forte, their their whole, like, legendary core element and reason for being is that it's, it's, it's accessible performance and reliability at a pleasant and approachable price point. Well, now, boys and girls, the base price of a... Nissan GTR is $114,000. So wow. now you're, you're sort of in rarefied air. You're competing against stuff that they did not intentionally, I don't think initially even wanted to uh, compete against. And I don't know, it, that, that's a whole lot to pay for something that just sort of like blends into the scenery to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing, by the way, is you're asking people to pay an awful lot of money for a car that's essentially 14 or 15 years old. That's uh, quite true. Yeah, that's a, yeah. a big ask. And you've got a, a, a brand new Corvette and you've got a, a almost brand new uh, 911 Turbo S. So it's it's just it's an old car. And um, I think people are turning away for that reason. So anyway. All right. Well, that's cool. And um, there's something that we have not talked about. So, Stefan, you and I, when we had our first show, we talked about all kinds of stuff, but uh, we did not talk about our first car. And I thought, you know something? Uh, we have never talked about our first car and it'd be fun to kind of 
first of all, get some of uh, Adam's early experiences because he wasn't on our first introduction. Can he even show. remember which was his first car? He's had like over 150. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have cars when I first got my license. So um, let's let's do that. Let's talk about our first cars and. And uh, I'd like to talk about what our, our maybe our favorite car is too, if we have time. But uh, Adams, let's go with you. Talk about your first car and tell us about it. And tell, I, I just go. When I turned sixteen at the turn of the century, right after the uh, the, the wagon was starting to bring the uh, the ice uh, by horseback. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No. When I when, when I turned yeah. sixteen, there there was nothing but muscle cars ruling the planet. They were roaming the earth and they were doing their thing. And I had had a uh, sort of an eyeball toward the European stuff. And my first car was sort of a combo platter. I had a Mercury Capri, the initial. Oh, first that's end. a nice car. Oh man. And I really liked it. I was very attracted to the styling. I had a, had an extremely limited budget. You know, back then you could buy about anything you wanted for 2,500 bucks used. I mean, it was like a, a plethora of options. And a lot of my friends understandably chose the, the Mustang with the Camaro. Yeah, tell people what you need. I, I think a lot of listeners are too young to know how cool the Capri was. Tell them just very briefly what the Capri was not actually an American car. It was, um, it was brought over from Europe. So You are so correct. And thank you for sort of bringing, bringing that back in because the Capri at the time, and we're talking about it was launched in, I think, 1971. My first one was a 1973 model, which was, you know, used at the time that I got it. However, it was a Ford of Europe design. And it was like a, if, if you can imagine, if you took a Ford Mustang and put it in a dryer and shrunk it down, but oh, Europeanized good. it. And, you know, it was a four-cylinder car. They later introduced the uh, the Ford Cologne V6 in a, either a, a 2.6 or 2.8 liter car. Mine was the four cylinder and it had a little bit of a European flair. It was not like a normal American design. It was a good looking car, a sort of a, a two plus two, but a two door. And mine, I hate to admit this for the listening public, but I knew you'd ask, it was an automatic. Oh, I knew that was coming. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, ouch. oh, oh. oh. Yeah, I, I, I made my amends later and got into multiple uh, different uh, clutch-equipped cars, but but it was British racing green with tan. It had a nice. little bit of European flavor, and I just really liked that car. It was maneuverable. It handled decently. It had a European look. It had pro-style wheels, and I can remember vividly. And it's funny, and I'm I'm interested to hear your guys' first cars and like how you treated them. My pattern of behavior is basically the same now as it was then, meaning I could not quit modifying that car. I could not leave it alone. I changed the wheels. I added a front spoiler. I was like addicted to the J.C. Whitney catalog. I put different awful, like super tacky mirrors on it. I changed the sound system like you would. I put a header on it. I put the worst exhaust you could put on a car. It was so it sounded like a Harley Davidson, you know, with the with with the straight pipes on it. And then I had to change that exhaust to make it like more socially acceptable. But that was my freedom. And all you guys are going to say the same thing. That was my passport to freedom. And it was my first yep. car. I, it, it, was, it was wonderful. Well, so my wife, Ellen, 
um, has wonderful memory, not a lot of memories of cars, but she remembers when her dad, who is a professor at Alabama, came home and they talked him into a super cool car and he bought a Capri. And she was like, that was the coolest car. And she remembers going with her friend Jill to get ice cream and stuff. And they wanted to take, it was almost as cool as Jill's dad's convertible Mustang, but it was cooler in a different way. It was European cool. And, it was uh, and it's, European. it's European cool at a time in America when cars were starting to get big and bloated and gas mileage was a concern. Yeah, very cool car. Much and, much and cooler than my much cooler than my first car. Before we transition to that, I gotta I, I gotta I gotta leave the listeners with this because they're gonna go, Capri, what an obscure sort of fringe element car. Let me go ahead and summarize this. The first two years they sold that car, they sold four hundred thousand units in the united states of america second only wow. bug wow i had no idea yeah, they were success. very they were i remember them being very very popular and uh i didn't realize the number was that big but it does not surprise me they were all over how long did you keep your capri for well that's another pattern that has persisted i kept that for six months i sold it i got a uh yeah, I, I, I got a, a 1970 uh, Firebird 350. I kept that six months. I bought another Capri after that. Uh, and so my addiction started there. But the Capri is the one I remember most fondly because that kicked it off. Nice. Yeah. So I, I my car was nowhere near as cool as yours. But for listeners, so of back in 19... 19- of course, not no way. I mean, you just wait. So it's 1978, and we we're living in St. Louis, Missouri, as a senior in high school. And mom was driving the Chrysler Cordoba, and we actually talked dad into trading in the van, and he bought a 79 Jeep CJ7. But that was his car. I mean, we he let us drive it. It was super cool in St. Louis in the snow and off road. But then, Dr. Steve Bryan, God rest his soul, who was kind of my mentor and surrogate parent. He bought himself a new vehicle, so he offered to drive up his 1973 piss yellow two-door Vegas station wagon with fake wood siding and sell it to me for $100. Whoa. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You I believe Vega, you they call was... that uh, a shooting break. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it kind of looked like but it was a Chevy. It was a Chevy Vega. It was a Chevy, the Chevrolet Vega, and you know what? But I was 16. I was broke. I wanted to go to college i want to go to medical school i was trying to save my money and um my buddies all had to push start the thing we put oil in it every gas time we every time we filled with gas but you know what it was what every 16 year old in america dreams of that, that was four wheels and that was freedom mm-hmm. um, and we had fond memories of that and i actually remember we would at, when i got to college we would drag race the vega against all the guys that had rich kids that had the BMW 320Is on fraternity row. Well, here was the difference. I could beat them up to about 30 miles an hour because with the Vega, I didn't hesitate to floor it and pop the clutch and then straight shift it without the clutch. And there's no guys, there's no way the prima donnas and their 320Is were even going to come close to doing that. So I was, I was quite the drag racer on fraternity row, you know, with, with the 73 Pistola Vega station wagon. You know, it's shocking you had warning lights on your dash, Steph. I'm hearing the story of how well you kept it. (laughs) You know, the standard transmission back then for the Vega was a three-speed. It was a three on the floor. I'm pretty sure mine had the four. I'm pretty sure it had a four-speed. Maybe it was a... 
I think it was the, it was the base one was a three, and then you paid extra, you can get a four speed. So you yeah, got, mine was a four speed. You got a very very fancy Vegas to find. I know Steve had a cool car, so we can go from cool to to uh, not so cool back to cool. Wait a sec. Are we through talking about all 87 horsepower that you had in that break? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the I only thing that held it together. Well that. The only thing that held it together through the end was the uh, fake vinyl siding because otherwise it completely rusted out. And you could kick the door and the rust would just hit the ground. But hey, it was wheels, man. Then I then I then I got the Jeep, and then when my parents went to Europe and I gave my little brother the Vega. Oh, wait a minute. So, so you ended up getting the CJ7 that had been your dad's? Yeah, when he went off to Europe, um, when I, yep, my, when I was in college, I ended up getting the, the CJ. Okay, we're going to give you a chance to elevate your character here. Did the CJ7 have a have a, a bigger motor or better one than the Vega? Yeah, straight six, three-speed. Straight okay. six, three-speed, yep. Okay, your respect is almost back intact. All right. <laughs> I think a Vega is actually the perfect either a vega or a pinto from back then would be the perfect first car because you don't want your first car to be too cool or too good stefan you're right my first car was cool it was a 1972 240z wow uh, and it was you know that's a hall of fame car and I'm we really just got trumped yeah. oh yeah big time well you will yeah well, my, my mom and daddy were doctors and lawyers yeah <laughs> wow well let me just fill in the details it was uh not only used but very used did not run well. Uh, I certainly spent a lot of time working on the, it, it was an inline six with Solex carburetors and as my memory, but it, it definitely was an inline six, 2.4 liter. And I think it was Solex uh, carburetors. Anyway, Adams, you're shaking your head. Was it, what, what kind of carburetors were they? I thought that was Solex. I, I think those were uh, uh, Stromberg imitation Hitachis. I think Hitachi was uh, imitating the Stromberg uh, 175 at the time. You had round top carburetors, and the 73 had the square top carburetors, which constantly overheated and vapor locked. You had the best year model you could have had. I Yeah, I, I've heard that, and I heard 72 was a good year. Yeah. But again, mine was very used. Um, I remember the gas gauge didn't work. So I had to kind of time the miles before I, you know, before I'd fill it up. I also remember the uh, windshield washer wouldn't work and it was, I was constantly fixing that and I couldn't fix the, the gas gauge, but it was fun to drive. It was a four speed, uh, two seater. It was so much fun. It, it, it represented freedom. I was pretty limited in that, you know, I had to pay for my own gas and stuff. So I ended up taking that bus a lot to work or to school. But on weekends and some special days, I would take that uh, into work or to school. Um, I also remember that I would take friends to the airport if they had to go to the airport, which is pretty unusual. But I remember specifically one friend reminded me recently that I would charge five dollars uh, for a trip to the <laughs> a trip to the airport, uh, which was about a forty five minute drive, and the five dollars, of course, would pay for all the gas I needed. And I had a little extra gas even even going round trips. So that tells you how cheap gas was back then. And but I remember though when I was a senior in high school, we all chipped in for gas because you know yeah. we come out of the gas crisis, and it was everybody chipped in for gas on the weekends, no matter where we went. That's just how you, we rolled back then because gas was expensive. And all that a lot of times you found yourself waiting in line to get gas. So yeah, if you drove, everybody chipped in two and a buck or two for gas. 
You know, it's funny that that was like like, like a, a social conformity. I mean, when yes. we it, it, the same exact year era, though I'm I'm a little little bit ahead of you guys in, in the years. Every time that you were out with people, when you got out of the car, you sort of expected to not get a bill, but you'd say, "Here's five bucks or ten bucks or whatever it was," because whoever had been taking you around was spending money. Yep. Steve, I got to ask you, man, what color was that wonderful 240Z? Uh, it was the classic orange. So oh, that it was wow. orange with the hubcaps, the 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 four spoke hubcaps. You mean um, the ones that are about six hundred dollars right now? You that got it. They were probably you know twenty five cents back then. But yeah. um, I had all four hubcaps, and I it, the orange was the classic color as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. Um, you know, I had a interesting upbringing. So uh, I'll just tell the rest of the story. You know, my parents had bought the car. It was very cheap. Uh, I don't remember exactly how much I'm thinking. It was around $3,000 back then, which would have been 1978, 79, probably 79. And, um, you know, a, a new one would, would have been at least 10. Maybe it was 2,500, but it was around 3,000. I remember that. And then I went off to college and uh, I, got, I got back literally my first break, which would have been Thanksgiving. And uh, my parents had taken the car out. And they had it painted light blue at like less, <laughs> whatever. Earl Scheib, remember that? <laughs> yeah. so, oh, we have a moment of silence that, that we yeah. don't edit out. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And uh, it was later on in the spring of my freshman year uh, that something happened because I got home and uh, the car was gone. And I said, what happened to the car? And they said, oh, somebody stole it. And I lived in a very, very quiet neighborhood where the chance of getting your car stolen was zero. So either they sold it or my father crashed it. I think my father probably crashed it, but um, I didn't, I was not, it was not a period of good relations with my parents. So I just said, fuck it. I don't care. Okay. I I got, I got to ask going back. Now I've never had a longing for another Capri. Although I do, I do look at them and go, wow, that was a cool car of the time. And it's an interesting design. And they, they did do Ford favors. Steph, I would imagine that you don't look back at uh, Vega Cambacks and go, man, those were the days. No, you know, but I do look back and I miss out that we didn't ask our guest if he had had the special edition Ford probe. Oh, still oh. on. Oh, come on. They, <laughs> they had, Steph, they had a what edition might that be, my friend? What edition? Of I, mean, uh, so, I mean, I got to beat up. I mean, the, the Ford Pro, man, and nearly, you know, they thought they were, it was going to replace the Mustang, and I, I just got to beat on this thing. It's like this you Japanese MX-6. Anyway, so they had a special edition that came out. It was in, in 1980. It was the Ford Probe Uranus, and um, – <laughs> It oh came in jockey gosh. white. It had brown racing stripes, <laughs> but you know it was oh, noted yes. because it didn't have any lock brakes, so it left a lot of skid marks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh. and with that, drive safely, everyone. And <laughs> with that, we let's, let's and with that, let's transition to the latest piece of news. Um, did you read about Adam Levine? Before you get there, let me just finish my, my story by saying <laughs> that I, can't I, I, go I don't know. We're not getting too much trouble. We got to let that story go. Before we before we move on, I have to say that driving my 240Z, even though it was not in great shape, um, it just was a kind of a beater. The sound of that inline six and the feel of the shifter, I would absolutely, in fact, I want to have one 
at some oh. point. I think at some point I will. I love. It'd be I a jewel of any collect anybody our age. It would be a jewel to have in their collection, man. Two forty Z is just. Unlike the probe, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a it's it's a Hall of Fame card, Adams. I, I, well, I give you bonus points for being able to recover from the jockey white with the brown stripes. I, mean, I, I don't know how you did that, but the question was, and you answered it appropriately. Like, would you want it back? And the 240Z, I think, really is on it. It, it is like completely independent of your economic status. A 240Z was a standard bearer. When it came out, all the MGBs and TR6s and Alfa Romeo spiders started looking like they were from another century, not just a few years before. So the 240Z, thank you, Dotson, for bringing that thing to the world. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, if I were to if I could have a car collection um, representing that era and nostalgia of what I liked, a 240Z would be just fit perfectly in a, in a collection yeah sorry to bring everybody down with my family problems back then but <laughs> at the same time driving it shifting it even looking at it it was all great it was, well until they painted it but uh it was absolutely fantastic and adams do you ever get like a hankering for a capri uh i really don't but i, I promise you i do get one for a 240z have you ever had a z uh, I've had a couple of them. I had um, a 71 that would not run right, that had been repainted the wrong color. It originally had been red, and it, somebody repainted it white. Then I had a 73 that was blue with a white interior, and it had the crappy carbs on it. That's why I knew that little carb trivia is that it just constantly vapor-locked, and it was impossible to restart. But, yes, I would love to have another one. So, Steve, would you rather have a, a 240Z or a Gen 1 GTI? Oh. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that because the, the favorite car uh, I ever had in my life, which is the next question, was the, the GTI. But that was my first new car, and it was special for that reason. I'd earned it. Uh, you know, the, the 240Z, of course, my parents had bought. But I'd earned and bought the uh, the first gen GTI for that. So for that reason, it has a special uh, place in my heart. It was so much fun to drive that it was, it was still my favorite car. However... I don't think it would age well. I don't think it would be. It's got too little horsepower. It's too tinny. I'd take the 240Z any day over yeah. a GTI Jump Mark One any that's, day. That's no, the, not even not even a question in my mind. Yeah, that's the answer for me. Okay. There's I a chance that's an age dependent affinity. I so think we'll, our age would prefer the 240, and I think a little bit younger group would say the GTI. So we'll just go on to Adams and his favorite car he's ever owned, and then we got to we have to get to safety because we're getting a little bit bit short on time, but. Adams, you've had so many cars of all kinds of different genres. What's your favorite? Uh, I'll make it pretty quick. A, a 246 GT uh, Dino, which people now consider a Ferrari, would be my favorite. Wow. Yeah, Why? that's the one you picked up. That's the one you bought in Italy and brought back. That's correct. Yeah, and I had it had it for about a about a year and a half or something. Maybe maybe going on to two years. But yeah, that that was a great car. It, it made all the right noises. It looked right. It smelled right. It fit right. It just did a lot of things right. Yeah, and Stefan, I know your answer, but go ahead and say it for the record. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah. Listeners, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> part. It wasn't the probe. <laughs> no, it was not the probe. Uh, but uh, no, AC two eighty nine Sports Cobra, which is a European version, which I can't get, but. I'm going to get the 427 Street on order, and uh, no, yep, that's it for me. That just that puts everything I want in a car: two door, convertible, raw, analog, 
a whole lot of stamping the tramp in the front with the engine. That's it for me. Cool. <laughs> well, oh my gosh. Jockey white with brown stripes. To oh, that's a hard visual to erase. Steve, would you, would you please tell us your favorite car so we can move on from that? I think I have to say my favorite car still is that GTI. It's, it was just special. It was really special. Very fun. It was something magical about it. And I have great memories of it. And I, I've never owned tons of cars and none of them have been spectacular. I have a, an E92 M3 that I really love because of the V8, but that's not, I wouldn't say that's my favorite. And my new 911 now is a new 911. It doesn't have the same emotional connection, I guess. Whereas that um, the 240Z was really, really great. The problem is that it, mine was just not, uh, it was not that good of a car. You know, it was, it was, it was too beat up, but uh, one that's been well restored. That's what I would want. And the GTI, it, this, it was more of an emotional thing than it was a car thing. So my favorite would be the GTI, but I would, if I was going to go get another one, just like you and a Dino, I know you'd, you'd love another Dino. I would love another 240Z. Well, just saying there must be some backseat memories from that GTI for you to pick that over a 240Z. <laughs> Uh, didn't Adam say a couple weeks ago, that's another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one where he talks about his parents a little bit more. (laughs) Well, you know, listeners, uh, we hope you will listen, list your first car and maybe why you enjoyed it. Because that really is that that's, that's like a keyway. It's a doorway. It's like a, like a passage of all of us. You know, when you start to get independent and you decide, Hey, I'm going to do something free of my household or free of my, my former life. It's often in an automobile. Boy, thank you, Adams, for saying that. I, I, no one could say it better than that. So with that, we'll move on to, to safety. Stefan. Okay. So, uh, so I was in Colorado this is the week before scan and we rented a Honda pilot. I should say I rented a car and I got a Honda pilot and I was not impressed with the drive at all. Um, but what, immediately came to mind that brought back memories was when I got into the Honda Pilot, I went to put my left foot rested up underneath the side. I immediately hit hit the parking brake foot lever with my Mm. shin. Mm. And that brought me back to when I was at um, Alabama with the Crash Injury Research Engineering Network. We were doing crash investigations. We had a patient that came in it wasn't a terrible crash, but it was your typical left frontal offset, which meant the wheel was driven into the wheel well and then pushed up in the floorboard of the driver. Very common. And you see a certain pattern of injuries with that. But this person had a nasty cut and a break clean across above their ankle. Not the usual, because what usually happens is when the, the floorboard of the car comes up, it's compressing the feet. Your knees hit the dash, so it actually breaks your feet and your ankles, your heel bone, the middle of your foot. doesn't clean snap your tibia in half. And we actually investigated that crash when I looked at it, and lo and behold, there was this foot. I can't remember the vehicle, though, but there you could see that we, we matched the foot strike to the emergency foot brake pedal to the fracture so i actually took a picture of this i couldn't believe it then i went on to iihs insurance institute for highway safety and looked up the um, crash result test for the honda pilot and amazingly to my 
much to my um, disappointment, but to the good of the benefit benefit of those who own it, it did have a good on the lower extremity and the left funnel offset. But when I looked at the pictures of the crash and they showed the picture of the dummy's leg, you can see the black strikes of the rubber pedal on the dummy's leg. Now, the metal on that foot pedal, I did notice, was very flimsy, so to speak, and had some like turns in it like it was basically meant to compress. But I don't understand why they have a foot brake emergency release pedal when it's got the push button park, the push button drive, and the push button rear. Why does it have this completely manual left foot brake? So, listeners, if you're driving around in a car that's got one of those foot brakes, don't tuck your left foot up underneath that left side with that brake pedal in front of your shin. Or if you're like a race car driver, what they do is when they see the impact, and we're not good, we're not this good, but they are on the brakes. And then right before moment of impact, they bring their knees up as high as they can, get their feet up off the floor. So it was very interesting that I don't understand why they still have that. I thought maybe it was because of their body on frame construction, but I looked at the, the pilot's actually unitized body, but this is some relic carryover you know i looked at the foot the foot pedal on my f-150 which is built in 2010 it's got the same foot brake on the left but it is tucked way back under the left it is not poking me in the shin so it's a little observation you know that's interesting because you start to think about your 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 floorboard area which nobody really thinks about until they're you know because you're in the car and they're looking for their you know, the ignition switch and the air conditioning control and the and the and the radio buttons and like whatever they're so doing. Nobody really ever looks at the floorboard until it starts to visit the passenger compartment, which is what you get to see. So the intrusion is incredibly hard metals, springs, cables, whatever they may be, that is coming up now visiting your shin, which is not a really pleasant thing to even think about so, so like when you said that it's a relic of, of the uh, of the elder style i presume that the industry is moving all towards sort of the 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 e-brake version of setting it with a little toggle switch like with your finger is that where everybody's going yeah exactly that's where people are going but what's amazing to me is that the pilot has the toggle switch for park but it also has the foot brake which I was surprised, you know, so I don't understand the reasoning behind that. What a but goofy redundancy to have. It is. And, um, you know, and you talked about, you're right, the foot pan. So the most common two vehicle collision is a left funnel offset. You can imagine where, you know, you're going to the intersection, you just clip the front of another car and it's the left front tire that then strikes the firewall and the floorboard that, that causes all the damage to the lower extremities in that type collision. Well, I'm sure that's not easy to repair nor pleasant for the patient to be repaired. I guess we're fortunate that I'm thinking like the center panel, I have the pull-up emergency brake handle in the in the 997, and then I have an electronic brake set in the uh in the Cayenne, which kind of keeps stuff out of the way. I never really thought about that. Every time you talk yeah. about safety, I think, wow, that's why they do that. Right. Yeah, I I uh I, I'm reminded of a interesting story I heard from a relative. And this relative happens to be a flight attendant and she started working for Boeing. And then she realized that they design these airplanes, airliners without the input of flight attendants or very little input from flight attendants. And she suggested, why don't we have a flight attendant on the 
the team that starts the design process. And they did that. And of course, the result is uh, an airplane that's, that's better suited for flight attendants because they were included on the initial design. Wouldn't it make sense, Stefan, to have a trauma surgeon or somebody like you with your experience or somebody with experience to look at a cabin and then make some suggestions? I, I'm sure that if, if they come to you with you know the, the original design and said, all right, here's our cabin, you would have noticed that and you would have said, hey, this, this is not a good idea. Yeah, great point, Steve. And that's what we had hoped to do through Siren. But you're right. I mean, you know, we see the victims, promise her to see the victims of these motor vehicle collisions. And there are times you just get these unusual injuries and you start to recognize patterns that occur from the occupant's interaction with the motor vehicle and the way things crush, they bend, they break. You know, and one of the what you mentioned that and that brings up another story. I remember is a lot of smaller four door cars before we had side air curtain bags. You'd sit in the car, and then you would have immediately to your left of your head would be the B pillar with the mount for the three point C belt. I cannot tell you the number of patients I had come in where they had skull fractures and inputs from that three point C belt mount. And then fortunately, we got curtains that came in. But you're right; it's like you know, here's a car, let me just sit in it. And I can, I guarantee that I could sit in any car being designed and immediately the way I would interact with the car would bring back memories just like this Honda pilot did of injury patterns that I saw. Yeah. I think that's, that's, uh, I wish they did that. So hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll increase our megaphone with this phone or with this show and, and hopefully we'll get more of that. So I, I, if, if any designer listens, I hope that would be something that they would take away. So, all right, we're out of time, but let's Wait, could, I, could, could I suggest that Stefan, please sit in a Morgan with the wood frame <laughs> oh, before, they, before they sell their 14 units over here. I think that would be appropriate. There you go. Oh uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, Stefan closes out. All right. Thanks listeners for, um, listening in once again tell all your friends your family members please like and subscribe we're through year one let's make this a banner year two so we can keep this going talk to you next week